Good morning, church. Please join me in reading as you see on the screen. Matthew 19, 13 through 30. Beginning in verse 13. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You should not murder, you should not commit adultery, you should not steal, you should not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you should love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Larry. Grateful for the Word of God this morning to be read over us and to us as we continue through this great Gospel of Matthew. So just hold your place there in Matthew 19. That's where we're going to be in just a few minutes. Uh, quick reminder, um, if you're looking for a place to connect or to go a little bit deeper in our messages, and we've had some challenging messages the past few weeks, but just remind you, Wednesday night at 6.30, we have something called Behind the Message. Great time of Q&A, and again, going a little deeper in the message, and just invite you to join us this Wednesday night at 6.30. It's a great time together. Now, here's the question I want us to ask this morning and try to figure out going into this passage, and it's this. It's a challenging question. I think Jesus is going to answer it for us here, and it's this, is why would someone walk away from Jesus? Why would someone walk away from Jesus? Now, I've been in ministry for a long time, for many years, and I've seen it more often than I really want to count, to be quite honest. The person comes, and they're zealous for the things of God and they appear to be having a great zeal for the things of God and they're asking the right questions and maybe maybe it happens after a church service or maybe it happens after an outreach or something like that but this person comes and they recognize a real maybe a real felt need in their heart they're they're expressing man I'm missing this or I'm lacking that and maybe that person prays the sinner's prayer or maybe they walk an aisle or what or some expression and 
to be really honest, maybe it's a week later, maybe it's a month later, maybe it's a few months later, but that individual pretty soon is nowhere to be found. They've walked away from Jesus. Now, in the Gospel of Matthew, leading up to this text, Jesus helps us with this dynamic of how, at times, this can happen. You remember back in Matthew 13, several weeks ago, Jesus taught a parable of the soils representing the human heart. And he said, at times, there's different soils, the heart that the seed of the Word of God will fall on and different results will come as that seed falls on different conditions of the heart. I'll just give you one example. He taught the parable of the sower and the seed and particularly the distracted heart. He said in Matthew 13, you'll remember this from a few weeks ago, he said, as for, the one whom the so as for what was sown among thorns, representing the human heart, this is the one who hears the word, but here's the results. The cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. The seed does not bear fruit because of the deceitfulness in the human heart, the distractions in the human heart. Jesus says, beware of this condition. This can be the condition of the human heart. And then he comes back in chapter 16 and he teaches the exact opposite. And he says, but, but here's genuine faith. Here's transforming faith. Matthew 16, Anthony just read it to us. Then, he told, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life, try to hold on, lose his life. But whoever in faith and repentance and dependence, just like we just, just sang about that incredible song, but whoever loses his life in faith will, for my sake, will find life in Christ. That's the authentic disciple. Now, here's the big truth we're going to be chasing this morning, and we're going to see it fleshed out in the life of this rich young ruler here in chapter 19. The big truth is this. Authentic disciples die to self and follow Jesus. And that following of Jesus endures. It's sustained. It's for a lifetime. Authentic disciples die to self and follow Jesus. Now, Matthew 19, what does that look like? Jesus gives us a picture here. We're going to see a picture of a man who walks away from Jesus. Now, it's a story of a man who comes to him with great zeal. If you've read this passage, he comes to Jesus with great zeal. He's asking all the right questions. He is aware in his own heart of something that's missing. He says that to Jesus. But by the time you get to the end of the story, Jesus is going to tell here, the man walks away sorrowfully from Jesus. Now, let's look at this carefully this morning. Why would someone walk away from Jesus? Verse 16, follow along with me. Who was this guy? Let's meet this fellow. Verse 16, and behold, a man came up to him, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? This sounds like a pretty good question. Now, we, we know this fellow. We know a few things about him. We know from verse 20 he was young. We don't know how young he was. We just know he was not old. The Bible says he was young. The Bible says he was rich, verse 22. Luke 18 says he was extremely rich. 
And then in Luke 18, the other passage, which tells this same story, we know that he was a ruler. So that's where we get the title. You've probably heard this story before. He was a rich guy, he was a young guy, and he was a ruler. What does that mean? Well, most likely he was a ruler, he was Jewish, and he was in charge or had some kind of authority in the local Jewish synagogue. So he was a well-respected individual, evidently, in his community. He would have known well the Mosaic law. He was well-off. He was influential. He was young. Here's the point. He was the guy from the outside that everyone would have looked at and go, that guy's got it together. That guy's got it together. So when he comes to Jesus and asks the question and says, how do I gain this thing called eternal life? That's why Matthew 6, verse 16 begins by saying, and behold. So it's shocking that this guy is the one who's coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I, I, I'm missing something. There's something not right in my life. Now, what is it that he wants? Follow with me, verse 16. Let's read it again. And behold, he comes up and he says, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life you might want to mark that in your bible underline that sometimes it's translated everlasting life we've heard that phrase that's a synonymous phrase to salvation he's saying what must i do to gain this thing called eternal life now again if you're in that culture you know this fella you've seen his life you've seen him be very fastidious religious he does all the right things you're going that guy's asking for this what's what's going on here behold this is not the guy we would think that would be coming to ask for eternal life now biblically I want you to understand something here when the Bible uses the phrase eternal life which it uses throughout the New Testament what is the Bible saying by this phrase called eternal life? Well, you may say, well, the Bible's talking about heaven, right? It's a, it's a quantity of life. I live forever. Nope, that's not what he's talking about here. Eternal life is not about an extent of life. This guy's not coming and saying, I want to live forever. He's not coming and saying, well, I, I want heaven. That's not what he's asking. In the New Testament, the idea of eternal life, watch this, is a quality of life, not a quantity. It's not talking about the length, it's talking about the quality of life. Here's what it basically means. It means to know God. It means to enter into the very life of God. To, to drink, if you will, from the life of God. This guy's coming and saying, there's something missing in the quality of my life. There's something missing. Now, a, a quick aside, the word life... Uh, it has the idea of, if you, if you think in a science realm, the, the word life, it literally is translated the word zoe. We get the word zoo from it in the original language. Life basically means this, <laughs> the capacity to respond to your environment. Now, hang on. So what are you talking about? Well, if you don't believe me, a dead person cannot respond to their environment. A living person can respond to their environment. Put those together, the idea of eternal life is the capacity the God-wrought capacity to respond to the divine environment that is God himself. You enter into an eternal type of quality of life, the very life of God himself. Jesus helps us with that. John 17, 3, you don't have to look it up. The Bible says this. All right, Jesus help us. What is eternal life? Well, Bible translates the Bible. John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they may know you. 
It's not talking about heaven. It's not talking about an extent of life. It's talking about a new quality of life that we enter enter into, the capacity to respond to God. Apart from the grace of God, we are dead and we lack the capacity to respond to God. Ephesians 2 says it this way. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. Remember that? But by the grace of God, we have been made alive in Christ. That is eternal life. You enter into the very life of God himself. And by the way, it lasts forever. So this guy is coming and he says there is something missing I know all the commandments. I've kept all the religious duties. There's something missing in my life. How do I gain this thing called eternal life? Mark 10, 17, telling the same story, says he eagerly wanted eternal life. Mark, Mark 10, 17 says this. As they were sitting out on their journey, a man ran up to Jesus, kneels down before Jesus, and says, how can I have eternal life? Same guy. I want you to get the picture here. This guy runs up to Jesus. This guy kneels before Jesus. This guy appears to have a zeal for the things of God. He's asking all the right questions. He he senses this deep felt need within himself. Can I just stop right here? You and I, if we had someone come up to us and say, hey, how do I have eternal life? Can you help me? Man, we're like, that's a good prospect. We've got to share the gospel. Yes, and we should share the gospel. He's ripe. He's ready. He's ready to trust Jesus. We don't have the divine understanding of a human soul like Jesus does. So look how Jesus responds in verse 17. Jesus said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. And there's a little reference there that Jesus seems to be implying is you don't fully even understand who I am, and that plays out later. If you would enter life, if you want this eternal life that you're talking about, listen to what Jesus says, keep the commandments. Stop right there. You want to really mess up your your theology, you take this verse out of context, and you use this as your evangelistic verse. It doesn't work. Keep the commandments. Do all the right things, keep, and you'll have eternal life. Is Jesus teaching a work salvation earned by keeping all the commandments? Is that what he's doing here? Hang with me, keep reading. Verse 18, the man comes back to him and says, okay, which ones? Which commandments am I supposed to keep? Now, keep in mind, this guy knew all the commandments very well. He was very familiar with the commandments. Jesus said to him, well... You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And then he gives the comprehensive commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus comes back with the moral law of God to this fella. Now stop right here. Is he saying, if you'll keep the commandments better than you've been keeping them, if you'll try harder, young man, then through the keeping of the law, you'll enter into eternal life. Absolutely not. Jesus is using the divine, holy, righteous law of God, watch this, to reveal the reality of what's in the man's heart. You hear that? He's using the 
the Word of God to reveal what's truly in this man's heart. So Jesus says, okay, let me hold out the standard of holiness, God's law. How, how are you stacking up against the law? By the way, we all fail mes- miserably, right, against the law of God. None of us keep the commandments. We're broken. We're sinful. This guy, here's how you know what's in his heart. Ready? Verse 20. The young man says to Jesus, well, all these I've kept. What do I still lack? In this man's assessment of the holiness of God, in this man's assessment of his own sin, he was standing before the creator of the universe, the savior of the world, and saying, I've got it all together. I've kept all the commandments, maybe not perfectly. I've kept them all, Lord. What else do I still like? Tell me what else I need to do. Lord, I've kept all your commandments. What's the point? Jesus is using the law of God to reveal and expose the condition of this man's heart. What is he lacking? What is missing in his heart? Let me show you three things that's missing here in his heart according to the gospel, according to the message of the New Testament. Number one, he's missing a recognition of his own spiritual poverty. He comes to Jesus and he says, think about this, all these I've kept, I'm good. Here's what he's saying, my ledger before you, Lord, is full, my account is complete. Look at all that I've done, look at all that I've accomplished, all these I have kept. And Jesus knows the condition of his heart and that's why Jesus holds out the law for the law of God to be the plumb line to drop into his heart intended for him to see, wait a minute, I am a woeful sinner before the holiness of God. This is consistent with the whole New Testament. That's why Jesus teaches in Matthew 5, we were there several months ago, the Beatitudes, how does someone begin a journey of faith? Jesus said this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Meaning, blessed are those who come to Jesus and realize, just like the song we just sang, the Abide song, I have nothing to bring to you. I am bankrupt. I've accomplished nothing. In fact, all I have is rebellion. This guy comes and says, all these I've kept. All these I've kept. He did not recognize his own spiritual poverty. Number two, there was no genuine grief over his own sin against a holy God. If we just pause right here for a second and meditate and ponder on the the picture that Jesus is giving us of this guy, it, it almost breaks your heart to think about, here is a man who is sinful, rebellious. He's standing before the Savior of the world, Jesus himself, face to face, and he says to Jesus, the Holy One, all these I've kept. All the commandments before God, I've kept them all. I'm good. My my ledger is clean. I've kept them all. Here's the idea. This man has no sense in his heart whatsoever that against God and God only has he sinned. There's no sense of grief because of his sin. See, that's a huge thing for us to understand. That's why Jesus in Matthew 5, continuing on the Beatitudes, he first says, blessed are the poor in spirit, we come empty. Then Matthew 5, 4 says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This guy has found no comfort of soul. You know why? Because he's never mourned over his sin. 
He's never seen that his sin and his heart is egregious against the holy God. And the picture here is striking. He's standing looking at the God of the universe in the flesh, Jesus, and says, all these I've kept. I got it. There's no brokenness over his sin. You say, why then the law? Why does he use the law of God here well the New Testament helps us to understand the purpose of God's moral law and when it comes to salvation is this Paul says it this way Romans 3:20, because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight for through the law comes the knowledge of sin through the word of God through the commandments for example is to be like a plumb line dropped in our lives and we realize in my best efforts is filthy rags. I am an eternity apart from a holy God. God in his holiness, me in my sinfulness. This guy comes to the God of the universe and says, all these I've kept. No brokenness over his sin. It's really important, I think, truth there for us parents as we're guiding our children and Pray walking them through and using tools like the FDP to invest in the lives of our children. And so many times we have those questions. When, when are our children ready to respond in faith? And when are our children ready? When, when, listen, without grief over sin, th- there's, no, there's no need for a Savior. Without a brokenness. And again, I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm not saying you're going to understand all the theological nuances and all the implications of it. But you come empty-handed and you come brokenness, aware of your own guilt. And why is that necessary? Because guilt will precede running to the grace of God. <laughs> the grace of God to a guilty man is a beautiful thing. But the grace of God to someone who says, all these I've kept and has it all together spiritually, the grace of God, the cross of Christ, the resurrection of Jesus, I can take it or leave it. And Jesus, if you say something I don't like, I'm going to walk away. And that's what happens. So this man, living example, he did not recognize his own spiritual bankruptcy. He, he was never grieved over his own sin. And thirdly, and Quickly, he, he has no posture of repentance. You say, well, he came physically and he was like bowed down before Jesus. So that's an outward expression. But over time, what's truly going on in the heart will bear fruit. He has no sense of repentance because here's the phrase again. Outwardly and inwardly, he says, all these I've kept. There's no turning from his own way. There's no dying to himself and again hear my heart this morning I'm not saying it's some emotional expression you have to sob and cry over your tears but there will be in a genuine God wrought salvation a brokenness over sin and you will be like David in Psalm 51 against you Lord and you alone I have sinned and it will lead you to run to a savior in faith it's not happening in this guy's heart it's not taking place in the heart of the rich young ruler. There was no posture of repentance. Repentance is a God-wrought response of the soul turning from my sin and running to the grace of God in Christ Jesus. That's salvation. It's not happening in this guy's life. So I'm going to give you a few big ideas as we go through. I'll give you one that maybe captures the beginning of this. Here it is. Jesus' followers come bankrupt in spirit, 
grieved over sin and with a posture of repentance. There's a bankruptcy of spirit. We see that here. There's a a genuine grief, a a sorrow over our sin that leads us to repentance. And there is a posture of repentance, a turning from, a turning from. And Pastor Mike, that's a lot. That's kind of heavy. The last few weeks have been heavy. I I get it. We're walking right through Matthew. What What do we even do with this? A couple quick applications. One, passage like this should inform our evangelism. Should never deter us from evangelism. Should never cause us to say, well, I'm afraid I'm going to mess it up. No, that's not the idea. But it should inform our evangelism and make sure that we never water down the gospel and assume that some mere felt need is genuine brokenness and repentance. I'm just saying, let's make sure we're calling someone to genuine faith and repentance over the brokenness of their sin and not merely some felt need. This guy had the felt need. There's something not right in my life. I need eternal life. All right, are you broken over sin? All these I've kept. It's not brokenness. So it should inform our evangelism. Again, I say it to parents to be very cautious in this. I say this to those who are walking through sharing the gospel with others, which I, I, I pray and hope we continue to grow as we do this as a church. I, I'm in a conversation with a young man right now. We're, we've met for lunch. We text back and forth. He's saying a lot of the right things. He recognizes a need in his life, I, especially when his girlfriend broke up with him a few weeks ago. I'll be honest, he's texting. He's he got a real need. And no brokenness. No awareness of sin. No, no need for a savior. Listen, I'll just be honest. When we sing songs like we sang this morning of God's redemptive grace and who we are in Christ, if you've been redeemed and you know the weight of your sin, you are singing of the grace of God. Singing of the glory of the grace of God. It's not happening in this guy's life. So number one, I think this will inform our evangelism. Number two, it will cause us to examine our own hearts. Examine our own hearts. Lord, give me a great clarity that I'm not holding on to some cheap walking down the aisle or some cheap prayer I prayed years ago that has never transformed my heart. Lord, am I broken before you as a rebel? Have I come to terms with my own sinfulness and my own poverty? And have I run to Jesus as Savior and King and Lord? Is that true in my life? Would inform our evangelism and should examine our own hearts. Amen? Well, there's more. Jesus continues on, just just a few minutes here, verse 21. He he continues the conversation with this fellow. And it really reveals in this guy's life there's two barriers to coming to Jesus. One is his own self-sufficiency, and the other one that's going to be exposed here are simply the earthly, misplaced, deceptive idols of his own heart. The other things that he is trusting in more than Christ. So verse 21, the conversation continues. Jesus says to him, if you would be perfect. Now, be careful. The word perfect there is another word for salvation. It means complete. If you would be saved, if you would truly come to know God, enter into eternal life, here's what you do. Now, you ought to read this in context, so hang with me. Go. Sell what you possess. Give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. 
when the young man heard this, stop right there, by the way, you, you hear that and you go, well, what? Is Jesus teaching works-based salvation? You keep the law? Well, we've already dealt with that. Is Jesus teaching salvation by philanthropy? <laughs> if I go, you know, serve the community, that's how I'm bored again? That, no, that's not what he's teaching at all. Hang with me. Remember, Jesus is using the Word of God to reveal the human heart. He says, go, sell your possessions, give to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me, verse 22. When the young man heard this, here's the phrase, he went away. He went away. What would cause someone to walk away from Jesus? He went away. He's standing in the face of the creator, savior of the world. And the Bible says sorrowfully, he turns and he walks away. Why? Verse 22. For he had great possessions. He had great possessions. Now, Jesus, what are you showing us here from this? Let me ask the next question. What is revealed by this man's response here? I'm going to give you three quick things. We, we saw what was revealed by his response of all these things I have kept and the condition of his heart. This is going to show something else about his heart. Three things really quick. This response to Jesus reveals this. Number one, he was unwilling to forsake his idols and trust Jesus for his true identity and security instead of his money. He was unwilling to forsake his idols. He, he clearly, by this expression, Jesus is using this call to go sell all he had. This is not a poverty gospel, which means you're more godly if you're poor than you are than you're rich. That's not what Jesus is teaching. He is revealing the God of this man's heart was his riches. And he says, go sell all you have and sell and give to the poor. Then you have treasure in heaven. Money and possessions can be a good thing. But at the same time, Jesus throughout the New Testament teaches money and possessions and wealth. And woe to us in the West with all of our money and possessions can be a deceptive, alluring, soul-destroying false god. That we have the tendency to trust in more than King Jesus and the Savior of the world. Jesus said in Luke 12, he said to them, Beware, be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance of possessions does his life consist of his possessions. Translation, this guy thinks he finds life in his stuff. He is so committed, and he had a lot of it, by the way, really wealthy, had a ton. And his sin was not in that he had those things, but it was that he looked to those things to be his functional savior and for his identity and for his security. And Jesus is basically saying the foolishness of trusting in that which will fade away. He was unwilling to turn and forsake his idols and run to Jesus for his true identity and his true security. Number two, look at this. He was unwilling to forsake his idol and trust Jesus for the future instead of his earthly treasure. Where do you get that from? Jesus said, look, come, sell all your possessions, give to the poor, and you will have treasure. Where? Heaven. 
He's like, I know you see all this treasure now, and you see all this stuff you have, but your life does not consist of that. Trust me. Give your life to me. Yield to me. Trust me as your identity. Your hope is not found in what you have stored up for the future. Is it wrong to store up for the future? Absolutely not. But when you transfer your hope to trusting in that, Jesus says, no, come follow me and you'll have treasure in heaven. It's a transit, it's an act of faith. The question Jesus is asking this fellow is in whom and in what are you really trusting? In whom or in what are you really trusting? Jesus continues on, verse 23, quickly. I know I said three things. I'll come back with a third one in a minute. He teaches a little bit on this idea of possessions because we all struggle with that. We especially struggle with that in the West. And his disciples said to Jesus, or Jesus said to his disciples, verse 23, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. What in the world does that mean? Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person into the kingdom of heaven. Thousands of people try to figure out what that camel thing means, and they make it this, this weird kind of stuff. Here's the point. Largest land animal known to them at the time was a camel. Smallest opening was an eye of a needle. Point, you can't do it. <laughs> point is, when a person's heart is fixed on their possessions and their God is in their stuff, their stuff can't save them. And their stuff can't give them life. And Jesus says, to find your life in me, you die to that. And you die to that functional God that you're trusting in. And this guy is sensing this. Jesus understands the condition of his own heart. He goes on, verse 25, the disciples heard this. They said, who then can be saved? Verse 26. Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible, meaning salvation is a work of God's grace and by his spirit. It is God that opens the eyes. It is God that changes the heart. God does this. But no, a great barrier to anyone coming to faith is their functional gods in this world they trust in. Jesus has just exposed this guy's God just exposed now third thing I said there were three what do we see about this guy here's the third point he was unwilling to forsake his God for identity is unwilling to forsake his God for his future hope third thing this guy found earthly treasure more satisfying and more glorious than Jesus the God of all glory that's just huge for you and me so Pastor Mike, what is it that breaks the grip of possessions and, and worldliness in our life? What is it? Is it my effort to try harder and do more and I'll just try to be godly? No, you'll never break the grip of possessions and sin in this world. There's one thing that will do it. The glory of God revealed in the face of Christ and the message of the gospel. So this guy is saying... He is walking away from the God of glory, the all-satisfying bread of life, fountain of living water, the one who alone can satisfy the soul. He's looking at him in the face, and he turns and walks away, functionally saying, I find my possessions and the things of this world more glorifying and greater and more satisfying than you. That is heartbreaking. 
What will turn our hearts and loosen the grip of the gods of this world? Are you ready for this? A greater God, a greater surpassing joy, a greater surpassing glory. That is Jesus himself. Here's your big idea. Jesus followers surrender all and find life in Jesus Christ. Remember the apostle Paul? And we won't take time to look all this up. You can look at it later. Paul was a young man like this. Paul was a young ruler. Paul was a guy who had rejected Christ, but when he met Christ on the road to Damascus, his life was changed. And here's his own testimony. Paul says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of those among my people. I was zealous for the things of God. And when he who had set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace, here's the phrase, was pleased to reveal the Son in me. Translation, he beheld the glory of God in the face of Christ and the beauty of Jesus and the glory of Jesus and the all-satisfying nature of Jesus broke the bonds of the idols of the world and he turned from the idols of the world and he ran to Jesus in faith and repentance. That's salvation. A greater glory, a greater pursuit. Zacchaeus, we read about Zacchaeus. He, he was a rich ruler. He was a rich tax collector just like this guy. When Jesus came to town, Zacchaeus climbed up in the tree. Remember, you all know the story. Jesus in a sycamore tree. And Jesus transformed his life. How do you know Jesus transformed his life? Verse 8 of Luke 19. You don't have to turn there. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. If I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus looked at him and said, Today salvation has come to your house. Because you went and sold stuff? Nope. Because you found a greater joy and a greater glory. And you had surrendered all of your life to Christ. Therefore, he had control of all your possessions. Do you have to give up everything to follow Jesus? No. But we're willing to as followers of Christ because he owns it all. And he is our surpassing glory and joy. Amen. Jesus' followers surrender all and find life in him. Well, Jesus wraps this up and we're going to wrap it up this way. I, I, I want to read these last few verses so... The disciples are standing around. In fact, the team can come on up and just begin to play. But the disciples are standing around, and they're watching this conversation. So one of the disciples, Peter, as usual, pipes up, verse 27. He says this, then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. We, we've done that. We've forsaken all, and we've followed you. What then will, be, what then will we have? Verse 27. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, it's an interesting phrase, in the regeneration, in the, in the age to come, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you'll see him in all his glory. Now we see him by faith. There is a day we will see him in all his glory. When the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me, you'll also sit on 12 thrones. We will reign with Jesus. We will rule with Jesus. Judging the 12 tribes of Israel, verse 29. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands, for my name's sake, you will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Here's your final big idea. 
Jesus' followers will receive eternal rewards. We'll talk more about that next week. You'll see how that plays out in chapter 20. Now listen carefully. Heaven is not a reward. It's by grace and grace alone. But God in his mercy and justice, there are rewards in heaven for God's people. That's what Jesus seems to be teaching here to the disciples. Talk more about that next week. Circling back around from the beginning, what would cause someone to walk away from Jesus? So here's this guy. He had a real interest in spiritual things. That was a good thing, but was not complete. He sensed a real felt need. He had an awareness. That that was a good thing, but was incomplete. A soul without a genuine brokenness over personal sin against the God of the universe, leading to a posture of repentance and faith, running to Jesus, our Savior and Lord, forsaking all idols and running to Him as our joy and our all. Without that, we will walk away from Jesus. What about you? What's the condition of your heart this morning? Has there been that time where you have forsaken all and turned from all the false gods, recognized your sin, clung to Jesus as your life? Have you found life in Him? If anyone would come after me, Jesus said, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Authentic disciples die to self and follow Jesus. Will you bow your head with me this morning? Father, I pray your word will settle in our hearts. God, I pray you'll call us to action and faith and repentance and deeper trust. Lord, I pray for anyone in this room right now who is much like the rich young ruler. They've had a zeal. They've had an interest. They... They've gone through the motions, but there's never been a time that they have been genuinely broken and repentant over their sin before God. Lord, I pray this morning, reveal that to them. And Father, I pray at the same time you reveal the glory of God in the face of King Jesus as the all-satisfying Savior of the world who has died in our place and risen to give us life. Lord, we love you and we trust you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Let's sing a song.